It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. All right. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Hey there, Chris. Good to see you. We're doing this remotely. I'm, I'm in Wisconsin. You're back home at the homestead for a change in Newcastle, Colorado. That's right. Yeah. I have a, I've had quite a night trying to get to internet. <laughs> they don't have internet everywhere you go in Wisconsin? I, I'm up here in northern Wisconsin. My parents have a satellite, which is useless. But, and then I was just reading this article about how there's, you know, not just Wisconsin, but rural places all over the country don't have any decent internet. And therefore, they're all getting screwed because, you know, you can't do anything without the internet. I don't know. I think these places felt like it was some fad that they could just, like, ignore. And, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And now all these old people are like, well, what? I got to do what on the internet? Like... And so everybody's screwed. And, and where my parents live, yeah, it's super hard to find. And, and I'm not on some amazing, uh, I'm here at my friend's lake house. I'm not on some amazing network here. It's just reasonable. It's just basic. But, yeah. you know, everywhere else it's just like garbage internet. You're on AOL right yeah, now. Yeah, I don't know. But, um, but it's working. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a shout out to Stacy and Steve. Uh, for letting me into their lake house while they're not here. But on the way over here, there was this huge storm. <laughs> and and uh, I saw that. Yeah. You know, this almost didn't happen. You almost got crushed by, by trees. Yeah, I'm just cruising down the road. I mean, a, a blacktop road, and uh, there's this giant tree in the road. Nobody around. <laughs> I haven't seen a car since I left my parents' place. So then I had to go four-wheeling around it. But then the other problem was my phone's battery was dying. And it was acting weird where it would it would charge up enough to turn on, but then it wouldn't charge while it was on, so it would die like a minute and a half later. So I would like look at the map real quick and try to see where I was, and then it would die. So technology has been betraying <laughs> me for several hours now. And then I managed. I, I like was on an ATV trail by accident, and uh, luckily I was in my my parents' Jeep, and so I like just raged up this ATV trail and popped out on the road. I think probably just a couple hundred yards down from where the tree was that had stopped me originally. So I'm going to go see if they've cleared it by the time I leave, but I, I seriously doubt it. So I might have to retrace my steps down this ATV like a scene in a movie. Trail. Yeah, totally. So this is what we do to get the fucking run out done for you people. You might get stabbed at some point tonight in your in your Wisconsin cabin <laughs> on a stormy yeah. night. I don't with know. no with no way to get out exactly. and back to safety <laughs> exactly, but uh, <laughs> anyway, it's been a while since we posted, and we want to apologize for that. It just kind of worked Only out to our patrons. Yeah, we're apologizing to our patrons. To so the rest of you folks that just freeload, whatever. Wait, you're going to wait as long as we want you to wait um, for your. You'll wait and like it. Yeah, for your free content. Um, but we will apologize to our patron patreons, and if you want to. Um, feel as though that apology applies to you you can of course go to uh, patreon.com slash runout podcast and become a patreon or patron a patron um so I, we call them rope guns rope guns yeah here at become the a rope gun 514 send it literally and we um send us we've had we've had several uh people become rope guns in spite of our silence which we appreciate so thank you very much awesome 
What have what, where have you been? Like we we just had this like scheduling conflict where mostly you kept disappearing, and then as soon as you came back, I disappeared into the internetless land of northern Wisconsin. So. Yeah, I've I've been on a little unique road trip uh, project with my friend Matt Siegel or Matt Segal, as you will. Um, your choice. You can choose your own adventure. His last name. He and I have been are, are cooking up this project of making a magazine about food and climbing. You know, I can't share too many details about it, but you know, we spent the last two weeks on the road visiting friends, new and old, and basically convincing people to cook us amazing dinners and go on adventures with us. So it's kind of been like this very selfishly brilliant project that I've fallen into. And yeah, we've got a couple more trips planned this summer. So we're going to be up in Ten Sleep and also in Bozeman at some point this summer. And yeah, it's been good. It's been good to like get out and like just kind of reconnect with the climbing community after the past year, see people I haven't seen in a long time and, um, and then meet some new people I'd otherwise wouldn't have met. So very social. I feel like I've been (laughs) more social in the last two weeks than I've been in the last, you know, 10 years of my life. Um, (laughs) was that uncomfortable for you, Andrew? (laughs) No, no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. It was, it was really good. But yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of the, you know, dinner party every night type of thing mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. after a while we were like, well, we're like exhausted from this. Right. So it's good to be home. And um, yeah, the work begins on on Brine Magazine, which is what we're calling it. So, so you can check that out on Instagram. You got to become real life friends with one of our pretend friends, one of the people we've wanted to be friends with on the run out for a while. Which is our friend Len, right? The meme, the the That's sal- right. sommelier, sommelier of memes. How do you pronounce that? <laughs> sommelier, yeah, sommelier of memes. Yes, um, yes. He. So I'm jealous. Uh, w- yeah, it was awesome. We went climbing together out in Ure and had an awesome time. And you know, he cooked us this amazing Navajo style dinner of um, different lamb parts. You know, we spent a, a, quite a bit of t- effort and time trying to find an actual live animal to butcher, but um, had to just settle for lamb parts that one of his relatives had butchered like the week earlier, but had some, you know, lamb liver. For someone as ribs. delicate as you are, so. I think that was probably better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I probably would have wept and cried and had to go home. The bleeding. Um <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, it was cool. You know, we we uh, it, it wasn't all just like a a bacchanal slaughter fest. We we kept it. We, we we visited with some folks who were vegans and you know ate healthy and and that kind of stuff too. So it's a good mix of like different people, different food types, and yeah, just a lot of socialization. Yeah, that's cool. So did your lady keep it together on the home front? You know, it turns out I don't actually contribute that much to the uh, the family operation here, um, despite my my belief that I did. Luckily, I picked up the slack. Kind of I picked up role. the slack a little bit for you. I know. I appreciate your you dipping in to to give Jen a break. Um, yeah, um, you know, it was this was it was two weeks. It was the longest I've been gone from my girls, and you know, we Facetimed every day and whatnot. But yeah, it was. Uh, I gotta say, um, it was a nice, <laughs> it's nice to 
to take a break from the the kid scene for a couple of weeks. Well, you have this luxury of being uh, in this case, you you created this you know super fun climbing trip that you were getting paid to go on, or eventually will get paid to go on, um, which is allows you to I think justify it. You know, if you had just said, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm good. I'm tired of this. I need a break. I'm going on this climbing trip." That would have been a much more difficult sell than, "Oh totally. yeah, I'm." You know, there's this paycheck at the end of it. So it, it was where your career your career choices finally, uh, you know, made sense for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll embrace that. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do for the next 20 years, but for those two weeks, yep. it's pretty sweet. Yep. Yeah. You can check out our project at, um, at Brian magazine on Instagram. Yeah. I'll share more details as it, as they become available. Cool. Yeah. The, the modern Anthony Bourdain, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the other, the other thing that's been simmering while you've been gone in the, it was the last episode that we put out, which was, uh, an awesome if I do say so myself, uh, interview with John Branch, who was who was super kind and, and giving us some of his time and, and coming on the show. And then our intro, which talked about the permitting that's going on around the country, but specifically uh, the Yosemite permit system. And, you know, it turns out we got criticized because we were sh- sort of long on spray and short on details about the uh, about the Yosemite system. And I kind of wanted to address that a little bit, not actually fill in the gaps we left out, um, but talk about sort of why the gaps are there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, it's like, we are not really a news source. And I don't actually (laughs) worry about having all those details lined up and getting them explained in our podcast. Because what was concerning me and continues to concern me with the Yosemite permit system is just that it exists and what it means for the future and sort of what their intent is with it. And I think that the rollout of it was confusing and it was very difficult to figure out what the details were and what the ramifications would be. Yeah. We're not a news uh, podcast. I think that's clear to all the (laughs) listeners by now. The, you know, I think that just to like give it some specific context, what, what really tweaked you is we got, some feedback from the access fund uh, who pushed back on the way that we characterized their sort of embrace of the new regulations or seeming embrace of the new regulations. And just to be clear, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what the timeline was, but you know, they, they shared the news that these regulations were in place on Facebook without any sort of pro or con stance, but just kind of by sharing it to to give people the um, the information that these regulations are coming, it was sort of had this like tacit acceptance that these are that the access fund is behind this change in policy. And then we recorded our podcast, and then sometime around the time that the podcast was recorded, uh, or thereafter, shortly thereafter, the access fund came out with um, a more forceful stance against the new regulations. Not a complete just sort of negation of them, but just kind of like. You know, we're not exactly comfortable with with all of this, uh, new, with, with these new policies. Do I have that correct, Chris? Yeah, sort of. That's the problem okay. I have is I don't think I characterized it wrong at all because yeah. even the new statement was basically like they've asked for two changes to the policy. As far as I know, those changes have not been implemented. 
And otherwise they were like, yeah, this is the way it is. There was nothing in there. You just used the word forceful. There is nothing forceful about their stance about the permit system. Nothing. And again, what I also went on to say is that they have a problem. The access fund has a problem. Access and protection no longer go together that well. Okay. If you want it open for everybody to use anytime they want, aka access, there's going to be damage. So I don't, I just like, I, you and I privately, no, I like, think- I got, I got a little bit like my hackles raised by this pushback. <laughs> and in two years, it's not going to be this policy. That's why I didn't care about the details. This policy is, is just a little ramp up. And that's all they're doing is softening up, up for, restrictions on how many people can climb on El Cap at any given time. That's all this is. Mm. And anybody who doesn't see that is like, what do you think is going to happen at the end of two years? They're going to be like, oh, well, we got our data and it turns out that you guys are cool. or We'll just like roll it back. Do you think that's going to happen, Andrew? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, no. And and yes, you did get your hackles up about this. And yes, you, you know this this uh, rant has been stewing in you for the last two weeks, as I know. But I just want to flag one thing, which is that I'm going to get blamed for all of your curmudgeon-y rants because for some reason I have this reputation of being the <laughs> the crusty one. <laughs> and um, so I'm, I'm like tentatively grimacing right now. All right, while okay, you so don't blame Andrew. That. I have a tendency to agree. We're at this place where it's like our climbing areas can't handle all the people. And so more and more, the Access Fund and the American Alpine Club and some of these other advocacy groups are going to have to side with land managers. And the way I read their policy statement about the permit or whatever you want to call it, I read it like uh, like they sat us down and told us that mommy and daddy are getting divorced and this is the way it's going to be, <laughs> and you're just going to have to get used to it. Because that's what it said. It said this yeah. permit is here. It's here because of these things that we have done as climbers, and we continue to do. So basically it was like sitting us down and saying, look, you guys are going to have to eat this, and we're going to continue Did you get the sense that they were kind of flat-footed? It. Yeah. By, but they were yes. caught flat-footed by, this, uh, by these regulations? Because these these... This this has been talked about for the last two years, mm-hmm. and it seems as though they didn't know how to respond to it initially. You know, even though I mean, like I, I wrote a story about this, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever, and so I I can't imagine that no one at these organizations didn't know that this was coming, and yet, you know, based on their social media, like at least in the Access Fund's case, their social media response to the news that that these regulations are now in place is. You know, you know, their claim was that they needed like a week or whatever to get their ducks in a row to figure out what the policy was and where they have a stand on it. I just sort of don't believe that because this has been news. We've known that this is coming for a long time now. Yeah, I mean, Tom Evans has just posted a, a, an excellent blog post about his Tom Evans at El Cap Report, um, the cat that, you know, takes pictures from the bridge and sort of records all these ascents sort of you know getting it all straight and also talking about why in his opinion a bunch of it's ass backwards the the data collection thing in his opinion is that it's it's you know all you're collecting data on is how many people sign up to climb el cap that's not how many people that do it 
because a, you know a great deal of those ascents will never get off the ground because getting off the ground on a big wall is actually one of the hardest parts. It's the crux. And so the data is not going to be reflective of who actually climbed El Cap. His point being, if you want data, you get people to do it afterwards or talk to him, you know, for, for Christ's sake. But anyhow, so the whole data collection thing is is just it's just a smokescreen. And besides that, do you, have they pre- presented a metric? You know, Jesse McGahey, the, the, the climbing ranger, you know, he has some com- complaints about how climbers act, and they're completely valid. But there's no metric where they, you know, it's like, okay, if we see a reduction of X, Y, and Z, then, you know, the permit system will go away. If we see, do you know what I mean? Like, if if they catch one person fixing ropes then boom, they've got their reason to regulate. So it's like, you know, it's completely foggy about what it all means because we know what it's going to mean. What it's going to mean is that they're going to put limits on how many people climb at least several of the routes on El Cap. Yeah, and also, I mean, like Tom's blog post that we just referenced, Mm -hmm. it's one of the few places that you can go to read like an actual idea for what is the actual problem that we're trying to solve for and what are the potential solutions? You know, he he correctly identified that the nose and the South a slash free rider are basically the only two routes out of a hundred routes that have any traffic on them that need any kind of regulation that need any kind of, you know, rules that we might need to follow. And so what would that even look like? What are we, what are the problems that we're actually trying to solve for? You know, and it seems like it's, garbage on the top and, you know, fixed gear on the top and fixed gear coming down the wall. And so, you know, there's solutions to that. He had some interesting ideas. Like one of them was, you know, perhaps there's, you know, some kind of regulation that before you get on the nose and bumble fuck your way up the wall, you'd like do the West face of leaning tower first and you show that you've completed that route. That's an idea that, that I think has a parallel to what regulations people have proposed for Everest mm-hmm. or don't make that your first 8,000 meter peak, you know, go do something else first and prove that you can, that you're committed to the high altitude game and you're not just some trophy seeker or whatever. So I don't know. It's, um, it, it, you know, I, it's like a nuance right. monger and, and a person who, who likes the, you know, facing the hard questions. It's a little depressing to just see this, like, this conversation be reduced to just these very simplistic polarizing ideas. Yeah. But you know, it's like, I'll, I'll push back against the, the proving your worth to be able to climb the nose because I don't think the beginner climbers are the trash problem. The trash problem Mm -hmm. on the top, I think, you know, and I, I, you know, I don't have the data to prove this and nor will the park service once they're done with this is the, People who go up there and camp out and and wrap down or stash or all those sorts of things. And so we're we're not actually, you know, I think that the beginner climber in this day and age, and Tom points this out too with the, like the poop, is that the climber itself regulated the poop. And it was, when I started climbing on El Cap in the 90s, it was pretty common that you chucked your shit off. Yeah. And you just put it in a bag and chucked it off. Like, oh, there's not, you know, it was kind of at the cusp of where in the 70s or whatever, there just weren't enough climbers up there to, for it to really be a problem. Like things did sort of deteriorate and disappear. But we had gotten to that that threshold where there was too many of us. And it did change. Primarily people haul their shit to the top. 
And it's definitely the general rule around that. And I have personal anecdotes about where really good climbers well into the era of like packing your trash and your poop up were still doing it the old way because they had this foot in that old world. So that's the problem I have with that, like having some sort of prerequisite is they're not the problem. And the, and the fixed ropes is not a problem of, you know, the team from wherever that came to do the nose. They're not fixing yeah. ropes that they leave behind. The left behind fixed ropes, which is something that's been cited by the park as a problem, are the good climbers. And the problem with the really good climbers is that they have two attitudes that, that are a problem is that, A, I'm above it all, and that these rules are for Gumby's, not for me, because uh, I'm rad, because I'm going to do the free rider or whatever, and I got to go down and work it. And the other problem is that, is that like, well, this is how we operate as elite climbers. You know, if, if this is going to get done, this is the way it is to be done. And, you know, our, our friends in the business, you know, the Hursons and other people have run into that exact problem of like, somebody thinks that fixed ropes are okay for them, even though they're not okay for everybody else because they're elite. It's a really interesting point that you're making yeah. too, because I mean, I guess to how much, what percentage of the problem will be solved if the rule on LCAP was not, you know, you need a permit, but there was simply no top down approach to the wall. Right. Like you can't stash it up there. You're not, you're not allowed to wrap down the wall to like, you know, fix ropes and like work pitches or whatever. I mean, we just saw on the news, um, Amity Warm and Taylor Caro uh, did a ground up free ascent of Golden Gate, and um, which is pretty rad. Yeah, who, who are who? who? Just you know, random people who are <laughs> showing up in the valley after a year of pandemic training and you know firing Golden Gate. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty rad. Like I'd never heard those names before and they, they did something amazing, you know, and our, uh, prior podcast guest, Connor Herson, you know, worked the nose in a similar fashion on the weekends with his dad, you know, I, th I think maybe the, the question that we should be asking ourselves is, you know, where is, is the problem? And if it's with, you know, free climbers who are causing a lot of you know maybe 75 percent of the problem by stashing ropes on the summit and and, and know, stuff on the roots the rules. And, and also stashing stuff on, the roots. stuff on the roots that they never end up using or getting because there's right. plenty of that where they wrap down they stash a bunch of shit and then they never use it or go back to get it because their plans failed i mean i i understand like banning top down working route from top down is this style thing that is unenforceable you know, you can't, the park service can't, there's just no way that that kind of nuance is any way enforceable. So it's, it's like the poop thing, the poop thing, the, the, the climbers, however it happened, it was a, a groundswell within climbing that changed that. And I think, well, right. It was a cultural, it was a cultural change. Mm -hmm. You know, the culture decided that you, you, you're not allowed to poop in bags and throw it off El Cap. Right. And that, that's where it came from and the change happened. And so that precedent is encouraging because if the culture decides that the El Rapitan style of, you know, working roots on, on El Cap is, you know, maybe no longer permissible, you know, that, I don't know. That's an interesting idea to explore. I'd be open to that conversation. So I have a question for you. What do you think it's the responsibility of the park service to try to create 
or try to sort of regulate the climbing experience and that the user experience of people stacked up on each other on, on the nose is a poor user experience. And so maybe a permitting system, you know, that evens people out, you know, stagger start dates and stuff like that is an attempt to make the experience better. Do you think that's sort of the realm of the park service to be dipping their toes into that? You know, I'm, I'm not too tuned into that level of bureaucracy. Um, so I, I don't really know what the, ans- the the proper answer to that is. If I had to just like, you know, guess, it seems like there's like, you know, a, a few things going on right now. There's the bureaucracy at the park service level, which has a job to, and a mission to fulfill. And when you have a job and m- mission to fulfill, come up with tasks and to be checked. And, you know, if you're a hammer, you find nails to hit. And so they're going to find regulations to impose. And that just sort of seems like the nature of any bureaucracy. I think that if we've gotten to a level where the rules are being um, handed down to us, then there's a failure on our part as a culture or community, you know, maybe there's blame to be passed around to the organizations that should be in the positions of responsibility to be aware of these things in advance to alert climbers that guess what rules are coming. You need to change your behavior and like, let's have a dialogue about what that looks like, but this is, this is going to affect your experience at some point if we don't make organic changes now at the community level. And so if we get to the point where the regulations are in place, I think that we failed as, as a community, like, I don't think we need that. So I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm (laughs) to go back to what we were talking about now. We're not like a news organization. We're not reporting. I'm just, you know, discovering how I feel about this issue as we have this conversation, but maybe, maybe that is how I feel that, you know, I had known that these Regulations were coming two years ago or something, and it's a shame that there wasn't any kind of conversation in advance of this happening that could have potentially given the Park Service pause at dropping the hammer, so to speak. Well, and Tom points out, too, which is something I've thought of as well, is that this is all happening in this maybe post, maybe sort of pause in the pandemic um, and it's just a strange time to do it when what's happening, I think, in the parks in particular, but in climbing is we're not sure how this is all going to unfold as as far as people using these resources, if it's going to mellow out. But we're certainly at a spike. And so it's a it's a weird time to suddenly decide that it's time to collect data. And I guess it wasn't sudden, but to go through with it when you're going to have this very strange 2021 is going to be a very strange data set in all walks of life. I mean, no matter what we're talking about, from employment, from social services, from, you know, schools, everything's going to be jacked this year. And so to to be doing a pilot program, ostensibly that you're going to create some other policy from this data, seems like a really misguided thing to do, to, to, to base it on this weird, crazy year, which may be up, maybe down, maybe flat, but we don't really know. Yeah. And, um, just getting a handle on how many people climb El Cap or climb these basically two routes every year. What does that even really say? I mean, I don't know how you would like evaluate what the threshold is for too many or too few. Well, that's my you point. Know? There's no, there's no, we don't know what their benchmark is or if, if there is one. 
Right. You know, do they have, did, yeah. did they come up with a rubric that's going to be like, okay, well, in our data collection two years, if it meets this, then this is the, this is going to be the result. It's mm-hmm. not, it's, it's, that's my, that's my like essential, I guess that's my problem with it. And the problem with the like, let's wait and see kind of stance is that we, we don't have to wait and see. There's going to be a reservation system that, limits the amount of people that can spend the night on El Cap. And if I'm wrong, you know, we can come back and, you know, I'll buy everybody a hamburger or whatever, but I know I'm not going to be wrong. So it's, <laughs> and, and, and to have sort of like people in policy pretending as though they don't think that as well is like, that's what's like, that's what's got my hackles up. I don't even necessarily disagree that there should be a permit system. In some yeah. ways, if it was, if it was, implemented in the right way it would be it would be really nice to know that actually if you were going to go climb the free rider on you know july 9th that you were going to be the only people starting it that day you know when i went and did golden gate that was a concern of ours like who else is starting this are we going to get all fucking jacked up on the heart hall although we we actually did start it almost at the same time as these other people and we just worked it out so it wasn't really a problem but you know there could be a way if it was being implemented in the right way where it could have some positive effects. But again, pretending as though it's not coming down the pike is, is I just think naivete. I mean, like national parks don't get rid of regulation. They just don't. They, it, it, it piles on. They don't implement a regulation. Then two years later go, well, we've reviewed this and it's, you know, we've turned out that it's uh, we were wrong, and everybody can go back to doing what they were doing before. Like, I don't know, send me an email where that's ever happened. Well, it sounds like uh, we stand by <laughs> our original podcast and opinions. Damn and straight. Even if we got details wrong, yeah. um, which we've already um, heard from our friends that um, in in Yosemite that it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> It's a fucking pain in the ass. Yeah, we got a. We won't name the climber, but we got a, a a voice memo just griping about getting their shit stolen because they were out of line apparently or didn't follow the the regulations to a T. Well, and they could stolen by the rangers, yeah. not not stolen. You, they stolen. couldn't get a permit because they decided to go up the day before, and you have to sign up a what four or two days ahead of time. I'm still four days. Yeah, yeah. so. They went over there and tried to be kosher and get it done, and they were like, "Oh, hi, we know you guys. I mean, they're 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 Valley locals, pretty much. But no, the rules are that you should have been here four days ago to sign up ahead of time, and so no, you can't have a permit to go up right. on El Cap. And guess what? They did anyway. <laughs> Under my <laughs> advice from last show." <laughs> <laughs> Alex Johnson is a bouldering icon and a five-time U.S. national champion. Her latest ascent is The Swarm, a V13-14 in Bishop. Yeah, it's been a while, Alex. I guess I haven't really talked to you in person in quite some time, although I saw you on the side of the highway, as I mentioned in my Instagram text to you. <laughs> yeah. That um, was which funny. is funny. Yeah. Um, I would have stopped and said hi, but there were tiny children screaming in the car because <laughs> their tablets weren't working. And so we were desperately trying to find a, a McDonald's Wi-Fi to 
to to reload Frozen Two. <laughs> ah, Frozen Two. I've watched that a few times with Kemple's little kiddo. Oh, nice. It's her favorite. I'll go over for movie night, and it's like, what are we watching? Frozen Two again. Again. Tim's like, cool, cool, cool. Kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I've managed to avoid two. Uh, we've it's seen not one as a good. few times. Yeah, the first one's way better. I um, I've seen them a few times, and I honestly don't understand the plot at all. So, <laughs> no, the second one makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense. It's funny. We brought uh, our daughter Piper to the movie theater to watch Frozen Two the first time, and she had never been to a theater before. And during that scene where there's like this big, you know, dark water wave or whatever that's mm-hmm. uh, swallowing Elsa up, she literally grabbed a, a bucket of popcorn and ran out of the movie theater screaming at the top of her lungs because it's terrified her. <laughs> Which I appreciated because she she was um, made sure that she had snacks out in the hallway to right. To she took the popcorn. <laughs> she's gonna be great in an emergency like an earthquake. It's gonna be like grab the essentials, and she's totally gonna go for the food. <laughs> Um, so anyway, Alex, we're, we're psyched to have you on the show today and we're going to talk about the swarm because you are now a free woman. You've been chained to this project for quite some time and, and you finally sent it. And so congratulations on doing that. And we just want to talk about the process that you've been through with this, uh, little piece of rock and what it means to you. And, and maybe we can talk a bit about just your process on it and what you learned. Yeah, thank you. And that's an excellent way to put it, being free. <laughs> um, I mean, so tell us just like how long this piece of rock has been in your life and how did you get into it? And and maybe you could just give us the brief overview of, of your relationship to this route. The roots of the saga, if you will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no kidding. So the first time I tried it was in 2011 and it wasn't serious. And I tried it a few times in between 2011 and very early 2014, also all sort of sporadically and not seriously. Um, And then 2014 was really when I sort of dove into committing to it. And it's been since 2014, sort of something that's always been looming over me, whether or not I knew it, like subconsciously, it was always what I was secretly thinking about or even subconsciously training for. Like if I was training for a World Cup, there was some part of me still that was like, Oh, if I get really fit, maybe I could go back to the swarm. So it was, it's had this crazy hold over me for a long time. What was it that first um, got you interested in this boulder problem? I'm not sure. I think walking up to it the first time I saw it, it was really, it was really beautiful. It's sort of like a, a sheer blank face with just the perfect amount of holds to make it possible. Like it could be, it was like nearly impossible looking and just, just the exact amount as if someone like sculpted it to make it just barely doable. And it was something like I'd been told for a long time that I was good at crimps and try this and try that and try this. And then I think maybe it was Jamie Emerson that said, try the swarm for the first time ever. It was like, oh, eight or nine after I'd done like a couple things in Colorado. And he was like, you should try the swarm. Like you're, you seem to be good at crimping. And so that sort of like got in my head because Jamie was someone I like looked up to at the time. He was like climbing a bunch of hard stuff in Colorado and, and for him to be like, you should try this. Like I took it to heart. Was this a Dave Graham Boulder problem? It was Matt Birch. Um, it was sort of like a Dave, Matt Birch, Chris Sharma, I think, battle for the first ascent. And Ben Moon, I think, came out and got pretty close to doing it. And that sort of like gave Matt Birch the kick in the pants that he needed to go and like execute. 
Yeah. So as you described on one hand, it's like got the, it's this like very austere line of crimpers up this, you know, completely improbable looking feature up a face and kind of into this prow on this giant granite block out in Bishop and beautiful climb. And on some level, it's like almost the beta seems entirely simple. Like there's just not much that you would otherwise grab or not much that you could do differently because there's so few holds. And it just kind of seems like if you're really good at crimping, it should be possible to do. Um, So that's my, you know, ignorant point of view from just watching video. So maybe you could tell me what is wrong with that analysis or where the, you know, where the nuance is or what makes it complicated. No, that's exactly right. It it is incredibly straightforward, and there's not really any way around the crux. and And I was trying to find a way around it. for For me, I didn't think I was strong enough in those first few years to do the double Gaston like shoulder move. And so, when I was trying it in 2014 and even 15 and 16, I was hitting the say it's the second move. I was hitting that hold a little farther to the right, and then piano matching that crimp and trying to go into the right shoulder. So I was like eliminating the like double Gaston chicken wing, you know, flying shoulder move. And I stuck it once or twice. And so I knew it was possible. And that was definitely like a way to sort of skirt around what for me was the crux, but I ended up doing it like the standard double Gaston flying chicken wing way. So even though I was like trying to find a way around it, I eventually went back to do it like the standard way. And I think the three other girls who have done it had slightly different foot beta than me. I think they used like a slightly higher foot to do the second move. Um, and then a couple shorter guys have done it that way too, but it's, it's pretty much standard. Like, can you do it? There's, there's not really a way around just like doing the moves. And, and my mom and I like had this funny conversation. She's like been a part of my climbing career for my entire life. And she was like, if the second move's the hardest, can you just skip it? And I was like, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> so let me wait. Let me make sure I have this right. The the double guest on flying chicken wing move. Is yep, that right? that's what I'm calling it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, I want to make sure my notes are correct. Um, Maybe you could just take us uh, straight to the day you did it. What changed that allowed you to to do this problem? And, and also, before um, you answer that, I just want to also flag another thing that you said, which was you might have the distinct the distinction of being the tallest woman to do this problem. And it sounds like you have to use like the quote unquote, you know, male beta or, Mm -hmm. you know, guy beta or whatever to do um, with that high foot that um, you couldn't use. And so I'd love to just hear like your thoughts on, on that difference in beta and also just what was it that really clicked that allowed this thing that is seemingly so straightforward, you know, just kind of a test piece of crimp strength, if you will, what changed? I think my approach this time around was not being public. And I think that ended up playing in my favor incredibly well. It was something that I don't know if I would take it back because it sort of just adds to like the grandeur of the story, I guess, in a way, but it definitely like messed with my, my mental approach and my brain and, and sort of like, going up to it, knowing all these people were watching. And I don't even, I don't even know if people were really watching, but it, it, me being public with it sort of at like added all of this pressure, not even that other people were putting pressure on me, but just that I was like, people know now that I'm trying it. So I have to do it. And if I don't, I'll be a public failure. And that like really got to me in the end, the fact that I was like really close and then 
sort of as the time went on, like farther and farther away. And I think had nothing to do with like my physical capability and everything to do with like my mental approach. And so this time around, I told no one that we were going, like not a single person knew we were there. And even when we were there, like it was like, not that we were keeping it top secret, but just that it was like, I had to do it that way. It's really interesting um, that there, this was became a mental crux of your own making in some way. Um, I absolutely did it to myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you could, it's almost like a, you know, I guess we've talked about this topic. Uh, Chris and I have talked about this before on the show about this, about pre-spray and like, you know, how, I don't know, 20 years ago, climbers were very reluctant and reticent about talking about the roots and boulder problems that they were trying in order to not be seen as like, you know, like the, there was just this code of trying to keep things secret until you did it. And that included, you know, not letting magazines publish photos of you on routes that you hadn't done. Right. All of that sort of changed drastically. I mean, not just changed drastically. It's like a completely obsolete way of doing business, so to speak, in climbing, uh, thanks in large part to social media. For Um, sure. I almost don't like it. And it's something that I think with like Instagram, I'm still maybe subconsciously adhering to aside from the swarm. It's really hard for me to post photos on things I haven't done. And I think people newer to the sport don't have that problem at all. And even, even posting a a photo of them on a boulder that they haven't done and not even saying that they haven't done it, but it's like, here's me on this V10 and not being like working this V10 or trying this V10 or can't wait to go back. It's like, here's me on this V10. And you're like, well, I know you haven't done that. I don't know yet. It's, 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 it's weird with me still. And I'm, I'm probably like part of the problem. Like again, like an issue I created for myself, like spraying about a boulder problem that I hadn't done, but it's still like a weird, like I still definitely have a hard time posting about things that I haven't done aside from the swarm, I guess. I think in my mind back then, I wanted to sort of invite people into like the process of me projecting it or like working it or like what sort of went into that. And I think my perspective on it now, yeah, I feel like I still like subconsciously adhere to the like, well, I can't post this. Like Brie will take a really cool photo of me like working something. And I'm like, she's like, do you want to post this? And I'm like, well, I can't because I haven't done it. (laughs) And then they'll go on Instagram and it's just like (laughs) yeah, influencers posing down on like, whatever, whatever that they haven't done. And it's still just, ah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was an interesting, like, oh, I want to invite people to follow along in this process because it'll be interesting. And then if I do it, maybe it'll be a cool, a cool story. And then it ended up turning into something way more epic. Take us back to the like 2014, 15, um, era. And, uh, maybe just tell us about how your relationship with sponsors at the time, maybe influenced you to be more open with, you know, the projecting process or if, if that was either explicit discussions or just implicit pressures about, um, how people were, you know, supposed to be public figures and in, in climbing, what was, yeah. um, how did that factor into this story? I think it was mostly me. I didn't really feel a lot of external pressure to be public about it because I hadn't done it. And I was definitely like really hesitant and and afraid to be public about it because it was so out of the norm, you know? And at the first few posts I made about it were still like pretty elusive and, and secretive. And it's, it was just like a photo of the boulder and it was like, the mountains are calling. Like I did like a cheesy John Muir quote, and like put a photo of the boulder. And it was like, obviously not that subtle, but I was still just like, I don't know. Should, do I, should I? Uh. But um, yeah, I, I wasn't really feeling 
pressure to be public about it. There's obviously pressure to like put points on the board as any sponsored athlete does, because if you're kind of having a stagnant year, then there's always the like, why should we resign you question and not the, we care about you as a human. Let's create like a longevity in our relationship. And I have more of those relationships now than I did back then. And so it's, it's more about like, for me, like the journey and the story and, and who I am now, then, Oh, I guess you had a rough year. What happened? <laughs> and so there, there's definitely like pressure to perform, but, um, I think I like definitely brought that on myself. Well, the irony is now you are allowed to post the picture of the boulder you haven't done, but you're not allowed to use the John Muir quote anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, tell, I mean, so I'm, I'm sort of like half curious to have this conversation because I've got projects that are in the realm of, you know, a decade plus, and there's this sort of, you know, sense of dread of, or just embarrassment or whatever that I feel even thinking about the idea that I would, you know, maybe one day put my rope down below these roots again, that, you know, roots that I publicly, you know, at least in my community, you know, came close to doing or failed on for a long time and, and, and then just never did. Cause so much of climbing hard is just like motivation and it's very easy to be unmotivated when there's that like additional sense of, I don't know the sense that other people are judging you or, you know, thinking, thinking ill of your, uh, your intentions. And so how did you, how did you get over that? Yeah, absolutely. There was a a ton of anxiety that like surrounded me going back and I was even like procrastinating it. And I, I was training in the garage during the 2020 pandemic and there were like a couple sort of staple boulder problems that I'd done around Utah and little cottonwood sort of like kind of hard test piece crimp lines, V 11, V 12. And it was like, okay, well I've done these, like maybe I'm ready. And the whole time I was like, no, I need to be stronger. No, I need to be stronger. I don't, I didn't want to go and sort of feel that same mental and emotional beat down that I did in the years prior. Like it really broke me mentally and I was sort of afraid of it and afraid of like feeling that way again, for sure. And so this, I was, I'm putting it off definitely. And then Brie finally at one point was like, well, we're going like you have, we have to go now. Like you're running out of it's March already. And so we were going to go in December and then um, the pandemic kind of sort of reared its head again and in full force. And I was like, Oh, bummer. Like Bishop's canceled. Guess, guess we can't go. And she was like, <laughs> okay, you're actively trying to get out of going back now. And it was definitely like this. I was kind of a head case about it and not wanting to go back because it made me feel so shitty about myself. And then we finally did go back and it was like hiking up there. It was hard not to, I guess, fall almost back into that same dread. And it like Brie had to be like, this is, it's totally different. You're a different person. You're a different climber. It's a different vibe. Like no one knows we're here. We're just like, you're dipping your toe back in the sand. Whether or not you do it this trip doesn't matter. You're just here to try and to see where you are and, and maybe learn. You go back and you try something different and then we come back in the fall, like this is whatever. And it was sort of that approach that eased the weight off my back a little bit. And, and ultimately I think led me to be able to send, but it was, I was very anxious and like honestly filled with dread about going back. How did you feel when you first sort of pulled on? Were, were you, were you able to kind of think about 
how you felt strong or did you feel weak or did you, you know, what, what was it like to actually, you know, pull onto the problem for the first few times and did that, you know, amazing. Did it lighten you up a little bit as far as like, wow, maybe I could do this. For sure. It was definitely a positive experience. Like those first few goes the first day, like I honestly thought I was going to do it the first day back. Like I was without a doubt, the strongest I'd ever been trying this boulder. And so it was a huge confidence boost. Like I did the shoulder move, which I'd never done before, like the double gas stone flying chicken wing. Um, I did it two or three times that day. And I think it's probably like from the second move to the end, maybe V10, maybe V11. I don't know. I'm really hard at like the grade breakdown thing, but that was something I'd never done before. And I was like, holy shit, like I'm absolutely strong enough to do this boulder. Like I've never been able to do that before. And I knew I was the strongest I'd ever been. And then like almost stuck the second move a couple of times and yeah, it was a huge confidence boost and sort of really helped to wash away all that like anxiety and dread because there was like years of wondering, you know, like, when am I going to go back? Am I going to go back? If I ever go back, will I do it? Or will I never go back? Like there, that was always like something in the back of my mind too. Like maybe I'll never go back to it. Like it broke me and hurt me so much that maybe I'll never, I never want to see it again. You know, I've been thinking about you for, uh, the Enorma cast. And I think I may have gotten in touch with you once or twice through a friend, um, our friend Simon, but you know, so I've been watching your career in a way, always thinking like, Oh, I should, I should have her on or ask if she'll come on the show. But it's been wild because it's like the transformation from, you know, at least an outside looking in to who you were then to who you are now, you know, you said that Brie, you know, counseled you, you're a different person, you're a different climber. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so apparent you know, the charity as well as maybe finding your place in the world in a much bigger and, and more important way in the last few years, um, becoming, you know, an ambassador in the sport. You know, I'm only commenting to say that it's like been this year by year transformation to a very different person. And um, I was wondering if you thought about that, like what you were just bringing on a kind of bigger scale to to this new attempt as who you who you've become in the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't think that I could have done this boulder without that transformation. And I think that being more comfortable and confident in who I am as a person has helped me be more confident in who I am as a climber. And it's sort of like the analogy that I've been using is like coming out was like taking off this hundred pound weight vest. And it was like, I was never able to fully express myself in my movement or my climbing because I was always holding a part of myself back. And you can't really ever reach your full potential in your sport. If you're always hiding, like I was always on guard, I was always hiding this part of me and, and it held back like other vulnerabilities, like in my training, like I would never really go full on balls to the wall because that would show a little bit of vulnerability. And as soon as that happens and the cracks start to show, and then people will see through this like shell or the facade. And so there was, I was always holding back, not just part of myself, but even in my climbing and my training. And so that allowed me to fully be like vulnerable and expressive, like in my training and my climbing. And I think that it's, it's really changed. Yeah. That, that brings a smile on my face because it's just such a wonderful part of our sport that we so rarely talk about, which is the, the aspect of being a good person and how that can relate to your performance. You know, it's not like if I had to guess, you've probably been strong enough to pull on those little crimpers for the last 10 years, but, um, there was this personal journey and, 
you know, it sounds like Brie played a big role in, in helping you be the, the stronger person in inside as well as, you know, out. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so it it's really cool. Like almost self-loathing, mm-hmm. you know, like I wasn't like growing up in the Midwest and ha- there wasn't a single gay kid in our school. And it was like, Oh my God, am I going to be that kid? Fuck no. <laughs> you know, like it's a class of 1600 and there's, it's all just like, straight white middle-class Christians up there and it's scary. And so it was, I was like so withdrawn and almost, yeah, filled with like self-loathing. And so moving out West, like really helped me sort of, even though it took a long time, like helped me become more comfortable with like just myself in general. And if you go to pull on holds like that, and if you hate yourself and you're hiding a huge part of yourself, like there's no way that you're going to succeed. And I hated myself. I mean, this is the part of the story to me that matters. Like, you know, woman goes back to seven year project and sends is not like the story here. It's this incredible bookend to what is the real story, which is, I think, again, this transformation we've watched over the last few years. And, um, you know, and, and something that you've, and once again, you, you know, in this case, you were public about that as well. And, you know, thinking about our discussion about being public about your intent to do the swarm, it's been such a benefit, I think, to, uh, to, to people who follow you that you have been public about it, about your struggles, about what it's felt like, you know, to come out and, and where you fit in this world. And so it, you know, it's sort of this lesson about, you know, this, this thing where being public about things can both be a a hindrance and a help. And I think in your case, it's been a great help to a lot of people. I, I hope so. And I think sort of what it came down to for me was like, the people in my life knew who I was and like knew who Brie was and knew we were together. And it was like a small circle, but I was never going to come out publicly. Like it was like, what will the industry see me differently? Will my sponsors see me differently? Like what is, yeah, it was like a lot of questioning and doubt. And, and I think for me, it came down to with my platform, I'm doing a disservice to people who want or maybe need to see someone who represents them in sports. And it was something that I think, like I've talked about a lot before I didn't really have growing up. There was like Ellen DeGeneres, you know, and that was kind of it. And she was accepted because she was funny. And so it was like, well, Oh yeah. You don't see people who look like you in sports. And it's, um, it's scary almost because then finally we get like Sue Bird, who I was a huge fan of growing up. Like I played basketball all through, fifth grade up to high school and and having Sue Bird as like an LGBTQ role model would have been amazing. But all of these like athletes who have now come out since it's incredible to see that so many young athletes and young people and like young LGBTQ kids have these people to look up to now. And I think that 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 was far more important than me. You're growing up in an era when the lesson being taught to you in a way is to not come out because you know, so many of these athletes, it was always, yes, well, of course they are, but they're not going to tell anybody or whispers about it or whatever. And so it's like kind of wild that it was actually sort of the opposite message. You know, if these superstars are afraid to come out, then how am I supposed to do it? You know, For sure. In this little Midwest town or, or whatever. And even like Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger, who are like these, this iconic lesbian, like soccer, U.S. team superstar couple, like we didn't even know Allie Krieger and Ashley Harris were dating until the last two years ago. And apparently they've been dating for 10 years. You know, it's still, it's still like, 
a scary and almost taboo thing. I don't know, which is kind of nuts because it's 2021. And it was like all of these icons that like we look to now in our community. I think we all kind of had the same epiphany that was like, all right, well, it is what it is at this point. And there's the statistic is 80% of young LGBTQ youth athletes are not out to their coaches and their teammates. And that's kind of outrageous. Like 80% is a really, really high number. And it was, I was one of those kids, you know, and having so many people to look to now has to feel so cool. Well, one of them is you. And, um, you know, you had these fears about coming out in, in the climbing community. Um, you know, you've just mentioned what it would mean to your role, your sponsors, things like that. Were any of those fears realized or how was or how has been, you know, sort of the general reaction to uh, to this information that you've, you know, again, you've been very public about for a, a while now? It was wildly positive and supportive and encouraging, which on one hand led me to be like, well, what was I worried about all along? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. Everything was like super supportive. And even my sponsors were like, yes, this is so cool. Like we love you no matter what, like you'll always have a place on our team. It's the, the sponsors I have now are like, it's about who you are and not so much what you're doing, but keep, keep doing cool stuff. And it's, um, it's sort of become something that they want to support outside of climbing too. Like, it's not just like you're, you're doing comps, you're climbing hard stuff. Cool. But I'll approach them with like, I approached Evolve and was like, I want to donate some money and I can't, do that alone. Like I could donate 20 bucks here and there, $200 here, but I wanted to like make a difference and donate a substantial amount of money. And so I approached Evolve with this idea to do a pride shoe. And I was like, let's do a pride shoe. And all proceeds can go to like these organizations, like these nonprofits, and we can really start to make a difference. And Evolve was like, absolutely, let's do it. And it's like, those are the brands that I'm working with now. And it's really awesome. So back five years ago, Alex, there was a big part of this process for you that was, you know, just becoming yourself and, uh, accepting who you are. And, um, but there's also seems to be part of the story was just letting go of the superficial things that didn't matter or were holding you back. Some of those things, it sounds like you actively chose to shed from shed from yourself. Others were sort of, you know, you didn't really have a say in one way or the other, including the the fact that you wanted to be the first woman to do this problem. Ashima Mm -hmm. came and did it relatively quickly you know, Alex came and did it in like a day or something like that. Insanely quickly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you know, I think we've all can relate to that process of watching other people do things that are hard for us. And it's this thing that I struggle with. I think a lot of people struggle with. So I'd just love to know your like very honest take on what you, what it was like to, to see this, like, you know, some of these like prizes kind of snatched away from you uh, during the process of working on this. I think the fact that I was really public about trying it and public about how close I was sort of opened those doors and maybe like welcomed that unintentionally. And the, like the process of Ashima, both Ashima and Puccio trying it were, it wasn't surprising to me and it wasn't news to me. Both of them reached out to me separately and expressed interest in wanting to try it. And it wasn't my boulder. It wasn't my first ascent. Like there's no, I, there's no red tag. It was just like something that I was trying and it was already done. And it, there was no way that I could be like, no, please wait for me to do it. Cause like they had still been waiting, you know, like <laughs> uh, text them now and be like, okay, you guys can go try it. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, I was like pretty involved in Ashima's process trying it. Like she would like text me or call me like after a date. Like she's like, I had a great day on it. Like I did this and I did this. And I'd be like, that's really cool. Like I'm stoked for you, kiddo. And like was for sure dying inside a little bit. But um, I think in climbing and in our sport and especially in like women's sports and women's climbing, like there has to be room for all of us at the top. Like we have to sort of adopt that kind of mentality. And and like Ashima called me and was like so stoked when she did it. And she was like, I did the swarm. Like, um, thank you so much for all your support. And I was like, totally. I'm so happy for you. And was like laying in my closet crying, you know, <laughs> but, um, I don't know, like these, these benchmark things. Like i I made a post a few, few months ago that was basically like, none of us would be where we are today without Lisa Rands. And so it's, you sort of have to like pay homage to those who came before you, even if like at the time, I'm sure Lisa was like, man, these kids like all Instagram and they're all getting attention for stuff that I did like 10 years ago. And it's like, totally like Lisa's got to be like the ultimate, like, oh man, did I get born 20 years too early, you know? <laughs> Cause she was the one who really like kicked the door in for the rest of us. And so that's sort of like, I think both Ashima and Puccio calling me and being like, like Puccio called me and was like, I know that you're bummed that Ashima did it, but I, I really want to try it too. Like, it looks so cool. And I was like, I, I know. And she was like, well, just go do it before me. Like I'm going in February. Like you have a month, just go do it. And I was like, okay, I'm not, I am not in shape, but thanks for calling. <laughs> and so it was, both of them were like incredibly respectful in their approach. Cause I think they knew that even though it wasn't my boulder, like I had invested a lot of myself emotionally into it. And so that was really cool. And that's sort of like for that to happen like I have a lot of respect for them back. And then that being said, like, again, there's room for all of us at the top. And I think that that mentality is something that we have to continue to like support each other. And like, just because someone's successful in something doesn't mean that you can't be it. You both can be. And I think that that was like a cool lesson that I learned as well throughout this whole process. And then Katie Lamb doing it was like double ultimate awesome because she's crushing everything right now. And she's like, I think compared to like Puccio and Ashima, relatively unknown. And so it's really cool to see like these two huge names trying it, like calling me and being like, I know that you really want to do it, but I really want to try it. I just want to let you know and like ultimate respect. And then Katie Lamb coming in, like crushing it too is pretty cool. Yeah, it's a super cool part of the story. And it's just um, interesting to hear that behind the scenes, you know, just, you know, coordination and communication and and mutual respect among your peers. Yeah. And they totally didn't have to do that. Like it was not my boulder problem, you know? And I think there was like, when I started trying it, a part of me that wanted to be the first girl to do it for sure. And at the time, I think it was still like proper V14. And I would have been the first woman in the world to do V14 had I done it, you know, that 2014. It was like first girl to do the swarm, first woman to climb V14. And those would have been like really awesome benchmarks. But I think for my story or for me, it would have been like a flash in the pan, you know, like I can't even remember the name of the Japanese woman who was the first woman to climb B14 that year. But exactly. it was sort of like, we all remember Angie doing the first V13, right. but, um, and how many girls have climbed V14 now? And I think for me, it would have been a flash in the pan and it would have been awesome. But this, this whole process and journey for me just means so much more and, and having to go back to it like year after year and then take a few years away from it and, I know like it's not groundbreaking. Like it's not the hardest thing a woman's ever done. It's, I'm not even the first one to do the damn boulder, but for some reason it's still like, I don't know. It means more. Well, it's an important thing to note too, is that, you know, you have this very small reference group when you're talking about these, 
those elite climbers that you were climbing with at, or, you know, the, these women that were contacting you and, you know, talking about someone like myself, I'm not actually that interested in bouldering, you know, in, you know, the nitty gritty of what it's all about, who did the first, what, who did the first, whatever, that's not really my wheelhouse. And it's interesting because people like me, and I think there's a lot of us out there who, again, are interested in you and who you are and again who you've become it's it would even if you had done those two things to the larger climbing public it would they would still be footnotes because what what's happened to you since in your role you're playing in climbing now is just i think more interesting and more you're contributing more and everything else so it's it's wild how our perspectives change and and how you can kind of get into this in, insular mindset when you're around a reference group that's as strong and as sort of in it as you were at that time, you know, marching around the boulders and Bishop and imagining that everybody's thinking what those people are thinking. But I think the greater climbing community would still see it as like, oh yeah, she did that boulder that many years ago, but wow, look what she's doing now. And this is way more fascinating and interesting. Yeah, and positive too. And people probably wouldn't even remember. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. At least, I mean, you know, again, within the cl- bouldering you know, aficionados, they would, but out here on, on the fringes with, uh, with someone like me, who's much more of a sport climber and and big root climber and stuff, I would just know that there's this woman representing, you know, her community in this way. That's just great and positive. And, and it's why we're talking to you now, you know, and, and that's, I just, I don't know why I'm like trying to cheerlead you on, but, uh, (laughs) but I feel like, you know, it's just, it's just like a perspective thing that, it's hard to remember that not everybody's just like keeping track of those things. <laughs> right. For sure. It's cra- like three girls have done it since a dozen have climbed V14 and the boulder has been freaking downgraded. And it's like bigger news <laughs> now than it would have been then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I think it, I don't know that like super cheesy gross cliche, like everything happens for a reason thing, but like, damn. Yeah, I think for like a bigger picture, not even for me, but for the betterment, like the betterment of the world and the community and like the queer community and and queer climbers and like young LGBTQ athletes, like, I don't know, I think it worked out like proper how it was supposed to work out. Tang Poche. Tang Poche. That's a fun word. Okay, the north pillar of Tang Poche, a 6,487-meter mountain, sitting about a stone's throw from Mount Everest, represents one of the next great problems of alpinism. Notice how I didn't say last great problem, as that phrase is one cliche that needs to be retired. Anyway, the north pillar of Tang Poche is a gobsmacking line of pretty legit big wall mixed climbing. It's currently caught the fancy of 29-year-old Welsh climber Quentin Roberts and Jesse Huey, our boy from here in Colorado. One of the interesting things about Tengkang Poche, aside from boasting this tasty-looking treat of unclimbed gnar, is its proximity to Everest Base Camp, where there's perfect 5G cell phone coverage as part of all the amenities that service the aristocrats over there. Earlier this year, I started texting Jesse to see what he was up to over in Nepal, right around the time the country shut down all travel due to the COVID outbreak. And I was amazed to get instant replies from him. 
I thought it'd be fun to have him record some audio clips of life in base camp and what it's like to be on the cutting edge of a hopeful first descent. This excerpt we're about to play was recorded after the two climbers had been awake for 30 hours, pushing to a pretty proud high point on their route before they decided it would be wise to turn around. They also sent in a longer conversation between themselves, talking about the dangerous route and life in Nepal this year. We'll be releasing that 30-minute chat as a bonus episode for our Rope Guns. If you want to hear this and more bonus content, please consider joining us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. For as little as five bucks a month, you can support our show and gain access to all our bonus episodes, such as our deep dive into Clint Eastwood's Iger Sanction and what that film says about justice, culture, and society today. And now, here's an excerpt of what two of the world's best alpinists actually talk about after getting done with a 30-hour push and drinking a beer. Dude, how much nicer is this bed than, like, you notice it was like the, the mantisserie going on a little bit last night? Like, I'd go this way, and I'd see that your legs were going this way, too, and I'd be like, okay. And then I'd roll that way, yeah. and then I'd feel you roll, and then I'd go, okay, I'm going to go this way now. I couldn't tell which one did you want. I, I didn't want a opposite. preference. I just... <laughs> I couldn't... I was just going whichever side my shoulder wasn't numb on. Is your shoulder, go, your hand go numb? My shoulder, yeah, my shoulder gets super sore because it gets crushed in sideways. Yeah, it fucking blows. It sucks. Then you have to swap it out. You go on the other side, and then it gets tins and needles on the other side. You just like wait for the pins and needles to go, and you hopefully get like twenty minutes of sleep before your other side fucking gets all pins and needly again. And then I would lie like this in the middle, and that was when my bladder felt the most full always, which sucked too. And also, I don't know if you noticed, but like. By our legs, like our heels were elevated. So oh, that back. sucked. We're chopping that shit yeah, out. It just got hyperextended, right? Like your knee, your knee. <laughs> yeah, like totally. Was I thought it was the boots at first, but then my feet would go numb because oh, I was like, "Oh fuck, that's the ice." No. Yeah, yeah. There was one point I think where you found out that it was like warm over on my side, and you like pushed my feet into the ice, and I was like, "Kind of a sweet." I don't remember that, dude. It was like 4 a.m. It was awesome. My feet got warm right after that. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, the man bag. That was. I felt like last night, for some reason, the first night, night we were up there, I didn't feel like we were squashed. But last night I felt kind of squashed. Well, it's because we spent the entire day in the tent. <laughs> yeah, and probably less, like, exhaustion passed out. Dude, I guarantee that girl had fucking coronavirus today. You think so? I do. I actually do think so. Yeah, that's fucked up. Right? You don't think so? I don't think so, no. But maybe. She was coughing, like, every ten seconds. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty rough. Because, I mean, we're going to get it in seven days. Or well, I will, because you're vaccinated. No, I think we're careful. I think she's just tailing her mom around. Was that her mom? Must have been. Those other people weren't nervous at all. Yeah, but I feel like they were all a family, weren't they? Uh-huh. It's just kind of like I've been... <clears throat> I've been sneezing and shit around you and haven't really been trying to protect you. Yeah, because we're using the same spin. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, we, we, we're in it, to we're win it. it together here, buddy. <laughs> yeah, drinking out of the same piss bag. Sort of. Did you say drinking out of the same piss bag? Yeah, but the piss bag is full of a freeze-dried meal. They're just all cold piss bags now. I'm so not tired. Yeah, I'm kind of all jazzed up, too. If you watch a TV show. Do we have one? No. We could rewatch a Silicon Valley. Yeah. God, I wish my computer worked. Me too. Kind of action stations here now, hey? Got a couple days of rest, and then we're fucking dropping the hammer. 
I gotta say, dude, like, running up that bottom half was so fucking fun until those last three pitches. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. Such fast climbing, dude. Rotating huge sample pitches. It's like, do you want to go? Okay, I'll go. And then you just go for like 300 meters. Fucking awesome. I'm to sit down and try and break that shit up into how we climbed it. It'd be interesting. I'll find a good photo. Yeah, the, the part that was kind of confusing to me was the, the first place where you put the rope on. Yeah. And led. I was like kind of disoriented where we were. And right. I was just kind of like. Did it make more sense when we wrapped it today? Yeah, but I don't really recall where we climbed. Like, yeah, I think it'll be pretty, I think it'll make the connection quite clear when you actually look at the, when I, like, where you just draw it out, like, show you on a photo, uh-huh. then you'll be able to associate all the landmarks with the photo, make more sense. Like, you recognizing that, like, oh, this is where we thought about going up and right, instead of going up and left, where the snow was lower angle. That's like, I don't know, I feel like that's the main feature anyways. God, what do we do at the, the zag right after the water race three pitch? Oh, dude, I don't know. We have to look at the face and decide, I think, and just see how white it looks. God, it'd be so sweet to go direct. That'd be so fun. It'd be fucking fun, dude. And yeah. you wouldn't have to jug at all. No. And it'd be, as soon as you're on the ice, it'd be so, if there was as much ice as there was for us today, I think it'd be the way. The only thing is, it's kind of the shooting gallery, and we'll be there at, like, the shooting gallery time of day. Mm. Except all that ice is going to be gone, dude. On yeah. the right side. Yeah, that, that would be pretty rough. Well, I, the the sketchy pitch I led, you can just keep going straight up. I think the chest corner would work. Wouldn't be too hard, and it's only like 15 meters long. You don't think it'd be that hard? I don't know. I didn't really look. I just kind of looked left, and I was like, oh, that looks like good ice, and then it was not good ice. I feel like you'd need some big peckers for that. Yeah, hey, it looked 80. Did you have a good look up? Like, straight up from the belay? Uh, yeah, there wasn't really any gear. Oh, it looked kind of chossy. A little bit of gear. It just looked like it was all going to fall apart while you're climbing it, you know? Yeah, totally. It looked heinous. It looked fucking gross. It looked, yeah, I mean, I didn't really spend a lot of time looking at it. I just looked at it and was like, oh, that looks fucked up. That ice looks okay. And then the ice wasn't actually that good. But that's like M7. Right. That's pretty rowdy. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Calouse, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today.